Hello, listeners. It's Chris here from Palico. Thank you for joining our podcast, Palico Capital Calls, the show where we sit down with thought leaders from private equity. We chat with LPs, GPs, and advisors in the space to discuss the industry and to get their take on what really matters. In this, our very first podcast, we sit down with Claire Commons, Palico's very own head of strategy. She brings 20 years of experience in PE, having worked on behalf of pensions, endowments, and families. She started her career just before 9-11 and consequently has worked through the tech bubble of the early 2000s, the global financial crisis of 08-09, and she joins us now as we collectively face the implications of COVID-19 to talk about what we can learn from previous crises. Hello, Claire. Welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. I'm really excited to be the first guest. Yes, I am as well. And of course, as we just said, we are colleagues, but it's great to put this on the record and to get um, a little bit more background um, from you personally. But before we jump into the main topic, uh, really quickly, just to learn a bit more about yourself, I know that you're actually a liberal arts major. So how does one go from a Yale liberal arts degree to a 20-year career in PE? Quite simply, an accident, and I needed to make money. (laughs) Uh, When I was was in college, I was an English major, and I um, focused on very esoteric stuff like like Old English. Um, But actually, I really enjoyed some of the quantitative uh, things I learned as well. And so investing actually felt like a really great home for me that combined both the qualitative and the, the quantitative. So my first job was, was actually a great um, kind of training ground um, starting place and for, for an investment career. And at my first job, I invested across all asset classes, public equities, fixed income, hedge funds, private assets, like real estate and private equity, and really worked with um, investors across the spectrum, both taxable and non-taxable, and families and pension funds and endowments. So it was a really great, great training ground for my career. Interesting. So that all being said, we get to the heart of of the topic here, right? Um, COVID-19 on the minds of everyone out there. And you, of course, um, have been doing this for for 20 years now. You've been through the dot-com bubble. You've been through the global financial crisis. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, you, you started working just weeks before 9-11, which was in of itself its own mini crisis. Just tell us a little bit about what that was like um, for you yourself as you were going through those various moments professionally. Yeah, it actually has been really interesting for me to reflect back on, on the two kind of other big crises that I've lived through and invested through. And as you said, I actually started, started my career first um, couple weeks before 9-11, which, as you said, wasn't exactly per se an investment crisis, um, but actually to me feels there, there's some similarity in that, um, you know, it felt like it came out of the blue for, for the vast majority of, of people. And there was a lot of chaos and no one knew which, which end was up. But there was something deep in us, I think all of us that knew that we knew that um, we would be, our lives would be changed forever from, from that day forward. And so I actually feel like there's similarities to that crisis to the current situation because, you know, except for some 
infectious disease specialists, most of us have been completely unprepared for how widespread the crisis has grown. And, but we all know deep down that if the effects of this will probably last, last for the long term. Um, I was just interviewed by someone from the press who was asking me you know, about the recovery and people talk about the U-shape and the V-shape recovery. The reality is we, you know, there are things outside of our control right now that, that will really dictate um, how, quickly, how quickly things recover. I would say as it compares to the global financial crisis, which was um, the sort of second crisis that I, that I invested through, um, I'd say the, that feels um, similar in that it, it's, it feels like it's really affecting the entire economy, where with that crisis, it wasn't a, an actual virus, but really the, the financial instruments, if you will, that was the virus that, that Wall Street was, quote unquote, infecting. Main Street, and I remember, you know, in those first early days, learning about, you know, money market funds breaking the bucks and uh, large corporations not being able to access the overnight commercial paper market and, and feeling like the wheels are really falling off the economy. Um, and so I, I feel like right now we're, we're not there yet in terms of the, the, the sort of financial markets grinding to a halt. Um, but but it does feel like there's there's a similarity or a rhyme to that as well with with this crisis because and I think this is interesting where where we may go with this conversation is that with with um, last crisis and this one I think investors are really trying to get handle um, then and now on liquidity and I remember uh, you know right before the last crisis my job at at a college endowment we were looking at. Um, liquidity of all of our assets in terms of daily liquidity, monthly liquidity, quarterly liquidity, and not liquid or illiquid, and that's private equity, and really making sure that we had a good snapshot, a good uh, balance sheet of, of what was what. And so I, I feel like the longer this goes on, the more important it will be for all of us investors to have a really good handle on what things are liquid, what are not, how long it takes to liquidate things, and what cash we really need. So, you know, as you say all that, is this the exercise that you're expecting a lot of LPs to be doing out there to really monitor how much they have in terms of uh, liquid and illiquid assets and how long that can play out for them? Um, because, you, you know, you said something earlier that, that that's so true. I mean, there's only so much control we have over the kind of the, the macro elements of this problem. But surely people are, are wondering what can they do now, right? They, they, they want to have some tools at hand. Uh, we'd love to understand from you what, what those might be. Yeah, I think, and I, I think I separate them into two camps. It's the needs and the opportunities. And so the, the, on the opportunity side, um, I think similar to the last crisis, now could end up being viewed as one of the best times to get in, one of the best buying, buying opportunities and and to do that, you need cash. You need liquidity. And so some of the some of the investors I talk to who have been most nimble have actually been a little lighter on illiquid assets like private equity because they've been able to access um, growth assets like public equity really easily and quickly by by selling um, cash and bonds and really sort of doubling down on on growth assets like like. Uh, public equities. Obviously, you can do that on the on the private market side, and you can do that more easily now than you used to through the secondary market. 
as well. The secondary market has has grown five times since since the two thousand, um, well, you know, the the earlier crisis we were talking about. Um, but that's kind of I think the the positive side, the the nimble investor side. On, on the need side, yeah, I think I think other investors are also kind of taking stock of of where um, where their cash needs are going to be either from from the level of the, the portfolio or even from the level of the organization. Um, if you think about sources of revenue of organizations, a lot of them are going to have some issues because revenue that they were depending on is not going to be able to uh, come through due to, you know, social distancing and, and people not being able to move around and, and, and participate in the economy. I think specific to private equity, uh, which is what this conversation is about, you know, there are, as we said, this is a great buying opportunity. And so I think we're seeing a bunch of private equity funds looking to actually put money to work right now, which is great, except if when the capital call comes, and I'm mindful that's the name of our, our podcast, when the, when, the, when the private equity manager picks up the phone and asks for that, that commitment and you don't have the cash available, that can be, that can be a challenging situation. Well, so, and that's, that's actually, it's interesting you should bring that up because that was something I wanted to, to talk to you about. Um, we've, we've heard, it's probably, uh, you know, any of us paying attention to private equity heard that there have been a couple of defaults in Europe. Um, obviously, undisclosed and probably will not be disclosed who those players are for a while. But just to get some perspective on, on that, um, during the GFC we, we saw some of those defaults just from an LP perspective, give, give us a little bit of, uh, of an idea of, of how bad that is and, and what alternatives they are in terms of planning for that or addressing for that since, since that seems to be like a worst case scenario. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think um, obviously default on a capital call is not, not in the best interest of anybody. And so I think what we're actually seeing is, um, LPs taking a look at their private equity portfolio and looking at unfunded liabilities, basically the, unfund, the, the, the line items, the private equity funds that have unfunded capital. Um, and, and on one hand, that, you know, that is an opportunity to kind of buy into this market. But on the other hand, it is a use of cash. And so um, we're seeing LPs consider selling some of those um, assets with, with um, large unfunded capital. Yeah, it seems like, like, I mean, well, maybe you can tell us since you've been talking to, to LPs out there more than I have, um, but what's, what's essentially the pulse of the market? Uh, obviously, we went from a record pace of secondary transactions over the past you know, 10 plus years, and all of a sudden, COVID-19 comes and there's everything into a disarray. What, what's your sense is, have secondaries totally paused? Um, yeah, what do you think is happening at present versus the short to long term on that? Yeah, well, so I think, you know, Palico is a really interesting um, place to be working because in some ways we are really, we kind of capture the, the pulse of the market. We, you know, we talk to buyers and sellers all the time. And so we're, we're kind of an interesting source of, of kind of, of, you know, taking the temperature on, on both sides. And um, so I would say that, you know, kind of two things. One is that, um, kind of general interest in learning how to sell on Palico specifically, obviously, because they're calling us. Um, but I can extrapolate that probably is similar generally in the market, um, has gone up. So um, if I looked at kind of my 
meeting in well now call volume sort of pre-COVID and post-COVID, it's gone up twice of kind of talking to interested sellers. And it's really across the spectrum of, you know, pensions and families and endowments. I would say that, um, you know, the tone of those calls has much more been, hey, let's, um, let's do some research and really make sure we kind of dig into the specifics of how do you list the fund? Um, how long does it take to do that? who are the typical buyers? How quickly do I get bids? What's the sort of timeline? How many weeks between um, kind of listing and, and purchasing? What are the types of assets that right now feel like they'd be more likely to, to sell? So I, I'd say that the conversations we're having with potential sellers now feel more like research and prep and less panic. Um, obviously, it's not a great selling technique to, to call and say you're panicked, but I would say, you know, for the most part, our, the, our member base is, is, is really very institutional and professional and, and high quality. So it's really a matter of, of, of preparing. Um, then, inter- so it felt like there was a couple weeks of that. And then now uh, we've actually seen a, you know, on Palico anyway, we've seen an uptick in in actual listings on the, on the platform. So, um, you know, we're actually now seeing some LPs list stakes and they're really a variety of sizes and shapes and, and strategies. So, um, you know, we're, we're seeing kind of the, there was a pause, you know, there was a pause button press as we were all kind of figuring out how our lives were going to be different. And now we're actually seeing um, some, some, uh, increased uh, activity on the platform. So to, to bring this back to, to the kind of the headline of, of our discussion, which is what can we learn from the previous crises, uh, crisis, especially with, with the uh, global financial crisis of, of 2008, 2009, secondary specifically, what, what to you is the same, what to you is different um, that uh, people in private equity uh, can think about? I'd say the, the biggest takeaway from the last crisis that, that, that I think is so applicable to now is to be prepared. You know, private equity is not um, a very quickly moving asset class, even with, even with the huge development of the secondary market, even with, um, you know, platforms like Palico, where, you know, selling your fund stake can take weeks instead of months. Um, that said, in, in any kind of crisis where there, where there is some uncertainty, really being prepared and doing your homework um, pays off. And so whether that's thinking about your liabilities and really making sure you understand your liabilities from an organizational standpoint, thinking about, um, you know, loans, um, you know, how those loans are structured from a private equity portfolio perspective, thinking about where your unfunded liabilities are, it really helps you. Um, invest and make decisions out of a place of, of confidence and um, reflection and rather out of fear and panic. And so whether you're buying or selling, um, I think that's really the, the most important thing to do is to spend the time, do your homework and be prepared. Because yeah. if you're selling in today's market, it doesn't mean that you've made a bad decision. It, it could be that you actually want the cash because you see some more interesting opportunity. And so all that matters is that, is that you have a clear head and you've had a time to be thoughtful and well-reasoned. And a, a lot of people talk about 
the amount of dry powder out there, do you think that will, that will you know, play a big role uh, in secondaries market this year? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's actually one of the really good news stories, um, uh, you know, especially if you're considering selling, is that going into this crisis, um, there's about, there was about 150 billion of dry powder in these secondary specialist funds. And that's really from this kind of long-term secular trend that private equity has been growing um, faster than, than public equity, faster than fixed income, faster than hedge funds. Um, that investors generally view private equity as a good way, if you can afford to be locked up that long, to 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 get a you know a couple um, percentage points of alpha over over the public markets. And so, if you're at five percent, but you want to get to ten percent in private equity, actually buying into sort of the secondary private equity through the secondary market is actually a really interesting active portfolio management tool to get closer to your target. So that's kind of the backdrop of why there's been so much interest in secondaries. And so because of that, um, these secondary private equity specialists, big, small, focused on bios, focused on growth, focused on venture, whatever, collectively, they have a lot of cash and, and they are actually looking to buy. Well, this kind of brings me to, to one of the bigger topics which is pricing. We have to talk about pricing, right? Uh, stock market has gone down 20 to 30%, depending on, on which, uh, which market you're looking at globally. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? How should people be looking at pricing in terms of secondaries as a percentage discount of NAV? I think I go back to the first comment, which is that it feels like things have changed and we don't know exactly how they've changed, but we know they've changed significantly. And so, you know, when we're talking to, to sellers, um, the, the idea of looking at your September 30, 2019 statement and kind of calculating a percent um, increase or decrease premium discount to NAV we feel like just the wrong starting point. Um, you know, there are some industries like, uh, you know, internet and some of, you know, the basically the, the sort of large ecosystem of FANG stocks, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, that are doing relatively well. There are other sectors like, like retail and, and services and industrial that are, that are suffering. And so there's not this kind of across the board discount that you can think about, it's really going to be, um, you know, industry by industry. And then also specifically, um, you know, as we're talking about company by company in terms of the actual specific financial health of that, of that company. And so I think buyers are really going to be more than ever um, rolling up their sleeves and looking at the financial strength, looking at the balance sheets of these underlying companies, looking at the covenants of the, of the loans, looking to see how aggressively companies can restructure their debt. And there's going to be a lot of stress testing. There's going to be a lot of stress testing about will it be a U-shaped recovery, a V-shaped recovery, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, I think what, you know, basically to, to sum it up, um, there's no more, you can't kind of look backward um, at, at, the, at the last statement. So when I hear 
you know, in, you know, premium or discount to NAV, it's almost like, well, what, what quarter are we talking about? And so I think the most interesting thing that's going to come out of this um, is that secondaries more than ever, I think will really be viewed as a, as a leading indicator to private equity. Um, and that I think they always are, but now more than ever, the buyers are really going to be in, in a competitive, you know, bidding situation will be able to um, do real-time analysis based on underlying company fundamental, based on um, comparison to public market comps, they'll be able to really set the, the future um, and the, the pricing of where we feel like private equity will be going in the future. Yeah, it, it's interesting, right? Um, to, to see how all these players will come out with, with pricing, what will be market clearing prices. I guess a part of that is how, how are they doing their, their day-to-day business? Uh, obviously, everyone working remotely. Um, we've seen tech uh, bring people together via Zoom and those sort of uh, platforms. Would love your thoughts on how private equity has already adapted and will need to adapt to this new reality and how tech might play a role in a you know, fairly conservative industry. You know, I was thinking about how basically how conservative we are in the financial industry uh, with our, the title of our, our podcast capital call. And it used to be that, um, you know, you, the, the GP would actually pick up the phone and, and call the LP to ask for, for the money. We've sort of kind of uh, modernized. They send in, you know, we send emails and they're sort of kind of data room stuff, but it's still pretty clunky. And, for example, there isn't actually a standard capital call system that every GP uses. It would be great. Every LP that I talked to, and I remember right. being an LP, getting the you know twenty different you know capital call notices and twenty different logins to go into different data rooms mm-hmm. to, to get this information. It's a real drag, right? Um, so that I, you know that all that is to say, I think there's big room for improvement. And you can see that as a really interesting opportunity, either entrepreneurs um, creating businesses, investors looking to invest in, in spaces. So I feel like, I feel like this crisis, if there, if there's a good side to it, I think it is forcing all of us in the financial industry to really um, adapt to being remote and adapt to more technologically forward environments. And so there's no more, you know, people can't send physical documents for signature. We have to use the sort of DocuSign type technologies. I'd say as it relates to the secondary market, um, you know, Palico has been living this modern reality, uh, you know, since our inception, that's really the genesis and the, the, um, that's where our business comes from, that we see this really exciting opportunity to modernize private equity and, and, and bring it into the future. So from our perspective, we actually, we think it's very exciting and we feel like our platform works really well in, in any environment. And, um, you know, sadly that then, you know, the remote environment we're in right now, it works just as well as, as um, you know, when we weren't all living, talking to each other from our bedroom in our kitchens. So for my, for my final question here, Claire, what do you feel uh, 
will stick once we come out of this confinement? What are the, what are the good things that you think will, will come out of this that, that, that you hope and that you think uh, people will continue doing? Sometimes I ask myself that when I wake up and I'm bummed out, it's another day of confinement. But no, I mean, we all have to figure out how to look on the, the bright side of things. And I think what is so hard for all of us type A, type A people is how to slow down and how to appreciate um, the moments that, that are not so fast paced. And I'm smiling because of two, two very personal examples. One is yesterday was my niece's 12th birthday and we were all on a zoom, all three generations with, you know, 12 grandkids and five kids and two parents. And my father remarked, he said, well, isn't this wonderful? We, I don't actually remember the last time we've all been able to be together remotely or not remotely. And, and um, so, so that's really good. And then the last little anecdote is that yesterday, my children and I, because we were literally, so <laughs> we had nothing else to do. We did a snail race, a literal race with snails. And so what I'm hoping to see is that um, I'm not comparing myself to Isaac Newton or some of these other people <laughs> that have dealt with, with um, confinements before, but that I, I wouldn't be surprised. I'm very optimistic about humanity that, that we'll see um, that there'll be some really interesting um, discoveries and developments and breakthroughs because um, as, as Albert Einstein said, uh, what, how he came up with um, some of his, theorems. He said, well, I was bored. I have nothing else to do. So <laughs> I, I'm, I'm hoping that I'm, I, I feel confident that we'll, we'll have some of those Albert Einstein stories as well. I am too. And um, here's to, you know, games that involve snails versus uh, the iPads and, you know, flashy games that we have. Uh, Claire, thank you for jumping on the call with us for Palico Capital Calls. Always a pleasure chatting with you. Thanks, Chris. Have a good one.